Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Sir Robert Hart was a diplomat who served the Chinese government for nearly 50 years and was responsible for completely revamping the Imperial Maritime Customs Service and setting up the Postal Service in the Qing Dynasty. Author and China expert Mark O'Neill has written the biography of a man he admires. Ireland's Imperial Mandarin, how Sir Robert Hart became the most influential foreigner in Qing China. I asked him what led him to write the book. Well, one day I opened my computer and there was an email from a man called Declan Kelleher, who was Irish ambassador in Beijing for nine years. And I knew him, well, I know him well. And in this email, there was a photograph of a brick from a Beijing street, a brand, typical grey brick. And written on the brick was Rue de Hart. And this brick is still present in Beijing. And it was that that persuaded me to write the book because it was a subject I'd been interested in when I was in Beijing, and I'd heard a lot about him. But uh, Declan sent me this photograph, and it was like a reminder that Hart was sort of still alive today, as it were. Declan himself was very much influenced by Hart, because, as I say, he was there for nine years, which is very unusual for an ambassador. Declan had many lessons from Hart. He used to tell me about the things that Hart had taught him. To, to help him to be an ambassador and a good ambassador and be a success in China. So that's how it started. If I was to quickly look at a biography, you know, online of Sir Robert Hart, then I, you know, I can find out that he was integral to modernising China maritime customs. But what did you find out about the personality of the man? Well, the first thing is he's very similar to my grandfather. I mean, they're Northern Irish Protestants. They were very religious. I mean, Hart was also very religious. They mastered Mandarin through great diligence. They were extremely disciplined people. So, uh, having written about grandfather, I found many things about Hart which were very similar to him. But as you say, Hart played an enormous role in, in China's history. Um, he was, for 48 years, the Inspector General of the Customs, and he worked for the Qing government. He didn't work for the British government or the French government. He worked for the Qing government. And he was there during the period from the Second Opium War until the Qinghai Revolution, 1911. So he was there during the period of China's greatest weakness when China was being gobbled up by all these different foreign powers. But he was sitting on the side of the, the Chinese government, not on the foreign power side. So it's a really extraordinary position he was in. And how is it that he could have this position for so long? Well, it was because he gained the trust and confidence of the, not all the Chinese leaders, but many of them. And they trusted him and they looked upon him not only as the head of the customs, but they looked upon him as a diplomat and as advisor. They, they wanted him to help them with everything. And he was very willing to do this and he became polymath, you know, he knew about everything. Of course, many in the government didn't like him. They were xenophobic and suspicious. But as I say, the, the first line of the book is that no foreigner in China has ever had the life as he has had, nor will they ever have in the future. In, in the future, we cannot imagine the Chinese government would hire a foreigner to have an important post for such a long time. Yes, it was extraordinary. I mean, this man, he comes, as you say, from Northern Ireland. And so when was he born and what kind of family background? Well, he came from a good family. He was born in 1835 in Portadown in the north of Ireland. He was a Protestant family, Methodist. 
Now, in those days, Northern Ireland, what sort of position would that have had in terms of... So he would have been growing up very much as a young British boy. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't use the term Northern Ireland because it didn't exist then. I should say the north of Ireland. Yeah, he grew up in this uh, uh, middle-class, uh, well-established Protestant community. His father ran a distillery, then ran shops. He, it was a comfortable life. He went to two Methodist schools, one in Taunton in England and one in Dublin. Then he went to Queen's University in Belfast, which had just been set up. And so, he, was a, he was an avid student, Oh, yeah, he was absolute model student. He, he studied extremely hard. He was very good at all his subjects. Uh, he came out top of the class. And that's the reason why the university chose him to be what was called a student interpreter, because Sir John Bowring, the governor of Hong Kong at that time, said that Britain had to send people to the diplomatic service and give them time to learn Chinese. It's no good just to send them and expect them to start work the next day because then they wouldn't have the time to learn Chinese. So there had to be a special category of people who were sent to China and had the time to learn Chinese. So he was one of these and Queen's University named him because he was the most outstanding student. Yes, but also I find it very interesting that, you know, if you look at this man who was born in 1835, he's a student in the north of Ireland, and then this sort of massive trip that, that will now take place for him to sail to these parts. What would he have known of China in those days? His main knowledge would be from sitting in the pews of the Methodist Church and the missionary effort in China had just started, the Protestant missionary effort. So his knowledge would not have come from newspapers or the lunch table. No, there was no connection with China at all. But within the church, there would have been people who were interested in China, perhaps had, had come to China, or they would invite missionaries from China to come and speak. Of course, his knowledge of China was extremely limited. So it was an enormous gamble for him to do this. Indeed. I mean, he was born in 1835. He would die in 1911. 48 years he spent in China. And in fact, he dedicated his life to China, as we'll hear later on. He had six children, but he was very much married to the job. Well, I think this is one of his traits, which is whatever he was doing, he did it not 100%, but 200%. So he comes to Hong Kong, he stays here very briefly, then he's sent to Ningbo. That's his first assignment. Where's that? That's in Zhejiang province. It's a big port but it had been opened up as a port for, for foreign commerce. Now, he wasn't so busy in Ningbo. So in Ningbo, he spent a lot of time learning Chinese. He had a job at the consulate, and this is where he had his first affair with this Chinese lady called Miss Ayu. And this was a very unusual affair because most of the foreign men at that time, they would have Chinese mistresses for a month, for three months, for six months, for a year. You know, they would pay... If a child was born, that was unfortunate, and then the child would be given to the family. And after a while, the men would get bored and have a new one. But Hart was different. He, he fell in love with this lady. So their affair went on for, uh, I think, about 12 years. They had three children. Everybody said it was the love of his life. Now, later, he married an Irish lady from his home place. That was the proper marriage to have. That was the local doctor's daughter. Yeah, the doctor of the Hart family, the daughter. Their courtship was about two weeks in 1866. Of course, she had absolutely no idea what she was getting into. Yeah, she was only 18. Yes, yeah, she was only 18. The real love of 
Robert Hart's life was his first love with Miss Ayu. But unfortunately, in those days, it was not possible for someone like him, who wants to be a high official in either the British or the Chinese governments, to have a wife who's the daughter of a, a boatman. So th the way it ended was that he paid her $3,000, which is an enormous sum of money at that time, and then he took the three children by her with him on his visit back to the UK. He gave them to a foster family, and then he goes to Ireland and he meets this lady uh, who is to become his wife. And in one of the passages in his diary, he describes, do I tell her or not about what I've done before? Because he's afraid if he tells her, then she won't agree to marry him. So he, he tells her something, but he doesn't tell her the, the, full, the full story. So he has three children with, this, uh, with the Irish wife, and they are his legal children. But she didn't like living in Beijing at all. She wasn't interested in China. She spent only a small amount of time there. So most of his time in Beijing, Hart lived on his own. So tell me, he arrives in Hong Kong, he spends a short time here. You know, the Hong Kong governor at that time was looking for, so generally diplomats or interpreters? Yeah, so his, his role was to learn Chinese and then having learned Chinese, then to work for the British government, the British Foreign Office, as an interpreter and as a translator. And it's a very good system and it still goes, happens today. I mean, the British Foreign Office send people to learn Chinese before they start working you know, in, in the embassy or in the consulates. So what would his initial job under the British government have been? So he was working in the Ningbo consulate. So the job of the consulate was to look after the interests of um, British citizens in Ningbo, British ships that came here. Uh, there would be disputes over trade or... Uh, um, belongings or disputes between people and they had to deal with that. But as I say, it, he wasn't so busy. So that was very good for him because it meant he could spend more time studying Chinese and <laughs> more time with his, with his lady friend. So he's in Ningbo. The British ships coming in, what would they have been bringing in at that time? Well, I think you know the answer to that question. Of course, they're bringing in opium because the problem with China was it was economically self-sufficient. China had a lot of things to export, but didn't need imports except some textiles. So in order to, to correct this balance, the British and the other foreign powers forced China to accept imports of opium, which made it, uh, you know, the trade balanced. So, yes, he would have been involved with, with uh, facilitating the imports of, these, of this opium. So Robert Hart is a young man in Ningbo. His role is to learn as much Chinese as he can, act as an interpreter for the British government. And then how does his career develop? Well, then he's sent to Guangzhou, and this is also most fascinating because Guangzhou at this time is actually being taken over by the British and the French armies. The governor of Guangzhou has been arrested by the British and sent to India. So now we have this enormous city run by a small number of British and French officials. And, of course, it's extremely difficult. To conquer a city is one thing, but to run it is another. So Hart works as an assistant to the British consul, and it's a very quick lesson for him in 
how the Chinese officials operate and how the Chinese administration operates because there is still a Chinese administration there, but the British and the French try to, to use it as they wish. So it's extremely embarrassing for the Chinese officials. I mean, they're humiliated at having been ordered around by the foreign officials. And Hart is in the middle. So actually, it was a very quick learning experience for him. So he spends most of his time during this period as the intermediary. So he's, he's with the Chinese officials. He's talking to them. He's relaying the instructions. Then they have demands too. And then he goes to see the, the British consul or the French consul and explains it to them. So he soon realizes the enormous chasm between the two sides and he's the only person who knows what both sides want because neither side is able or is willing to understand the other one. So what can you garner from his letters or his diary to suggest that he was this kind of consummate diplomat even early on? Because he was a very uh, intelligent man and he was also a sensitive man. He wasn't arrogant and I think perhaps coming from Ireland helps because he didn't belong to the British ruling class. So there wasn't this sense of entitlement? No. Of course, his mastery of the language is critical here because if you don't understand what the Chinese person is saying, you listen to it less. You're less sensitive to what the person is saying. But he he knew what they were saying. I think several factors. And Methodism too. Methodism is very democratic religion you know it has no bishops or, or cardinals you know it's a very it's it's everyone is equal in methodism i think this also helped him i'm talking with author mark o'neill about the diplomat sir robert hart he was born in 1835 in the north of ireland and would die in 1911 he spent 48 years in china and he was integral in actually updating china customs well the the next thing that happens is that uh, you see, China is at that moment fighting the Taiping Rebellion, which is this enormous rebellion in which 20 million people are killed. And the foreigners are developing the commerce with China. What sort of time period did the Taiping Rebellion cover? So it would be about 1845 to 1860. So over 15 years, and he's in the middle of that. Yes, so the point is the, the, the Qing government is, is distracted by this. I mean, this is a threat to its, its whole existence. If the Taiping army conquers Beijing, all the leaders of the Qing dynasty will be executed, their families will be executed, and we will have a new dynasty. We'll have the Taiping dynasty. So the foreigners uh, seize this opportunity to say, well, in the midst of this chaos, we've got to have a better and improved custom service. And the Qing government agrees to this mainly because they're distracted, but also because they see it could be more efficient and less corrupt. So this custom service is set up. So this is, for Hart, the big decision. So he's, he's, he's a British diplomat, right? He's got a nice, secure job in the British Foreign Service, and then this custom service is set up, and he's invited to run it in Guangzhou, where, where he is. And he decides to, to, to do that. So he has to resign from the British Foreign Service and then work for this very young and, you know, just established custom service and nobody knows the future. And as I say, it's a big risk by him. Now, the British are not against him joining because they want to control the custom service too. But in a legal sense, he's left the diplomatic service. So he's joined the custom service and they told him, you can't come back. So he starts his customs work in Guangzhou. So when we look at this customs service, it would have been right across China or it would have been at the ports? It was to deal with the British or to deal with all the foreign powers? 
Well, it was only active in those ports on the East Coast which had foreign trade. So these were the ports that had been opened because of the various treaties. So it would be British ships, French ships, American ships, Japanese ships, not Chinese ships. So the Customs Service was set up to regularise the import and export of Chinese goods to prevent the payment of bribes, the need to pay bribes, and also to guarantee that the government received proper revenue. So Sir Robert Hart would oversee, basically you would board the ships, check the contents, the captain would give an inventory? Yeah, well, of course, before what had happened was all kinds of fraud would happen. You know, you'd have a, a ship full of tea, which was a very valuable commodity, and then you would say that the ship was empty and you were leaving China with no goods, and then you'd pay a bribe to the customs officer who would stamp the report, and you'd get away without paying anything. And so this was widespread before. So the, the service was set up to make it a proper, standardised, regular system. And it was very successful because very quickly the Qing government got much more revenue than they'd done before, which is why they agreed to keep it. So how was Robert Hart integral in that, in cleaning up? Well, so then what happens is that uh, he's, he's in Guangzhou. He's uh, within the customs service. He's not the head of it. But then the head of it is a man called Horatio Lei, who is also a very talented man, speaks very good Chinese, but he is a much more typical expat. He's very arrogant, he looks down on Chinese. He's working for the Qing government, but he doesn't really acknowledge that. So one day he announces that he's going to go to Britain on sick leave, and the Qing government has just appointed him as the head of this customer service. But despite that, he doesn't come to Beijing to, to report to his bosses or explain what he's doing. He just takes off from Shanghai. And the Chinese government was extremely angry and it's very impolite to do that. And it's just in this space, Robert Hart goes to Beijing and meets the leaders of the new, it's not called foreign ministry, but it's actually the foreign ministry. And this is the critical meeting of his life because he meets the man who is the head of the foreign ministry at that time uh, called uh, Prince Gong. And Prince Gong immediately takes to him. And Prince Gong asks him many questions about the customs service. How does it operate? How do you collect the money? What are the procedures? And Hart has done all his homework, just as he did for his exams mm -hmm. you know, at Queen's University. So he answers all of the questions of Prince Gong. And Prince Gong is very impressed. And Prince When you say Prince Gong, so he would have been a prince? or Yeah, he was a member of the Manchu royal family, uh -huh. you know, a relative of the emperor. And uh, he says, this is in June 1861, there are very few Chinese officials upon whom I can rely. But this foreigner is reliable. If we had a hundred hearts, my affairs would run smoothly. Mm. So we put that on the back page of the book. So Robert Hart is at that point only 26 years old. Yes, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. What he then does is he creates this uh, Imperial Maritime Customs Service. And this is, again, remarkable because he's created it from, from zero. He's a very young man. He, he doesn't have experience in the government anywhere else. So he, he sets about building up a system which he thinks will be not corrupt, well-run, well-regulated, and he sees a long-term thing. So he wants foreigners who are going to work for him for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And Chinese and English are the official languages in the customs service, so the foreigners must be able to read and speak Chinese. 
And he succeeds in this. He creates this service which attracts people from, uh, in the end, 20 countries, the USA, Britain, France, Japan, Germany, Denmark, Holland. It's like League of Nations, but the League of Nations hadn't been set up yet. I mean, it's amazing to have this concept that you could have this multinational organization at this this time. Most people thought just in national terms and just favored their own people. And the reason for this is that he wanted all the nations trading with China to be involved to reduce the possibility of conflicts. And he felt it would also help with corruption because if everyone is from the same country, then they're more likely to help each other and give each other kickbacks. And then he also adopted a very severe accounting system. This is to, to stop the corruption of reporting. People had to report the, the income every month. The reports were all sent to him in Beijing. He had to go over them. They had to be signed off by the commissioner in each particular port. I mean, he, he didn't believe that foreigners are less corrupt than Chinese. No, he didn't believe that. But he believed the key was to have a system. If you have a system in place, then people cannot be corrupt. And that was one of his great achievements. So he's the Inspector General of the Imperial Maritime Customs Service. You've got all these ports down the East Coast because that is also considering the transport available over land or otherwise just everything under sail until a bit of steam mm. coming in, you know, 1860s onwards, mm. I'd say. But generally, to be able to run an efficient service at that time must have been hugely challenging. Yeah, I mean, the inland transport system was very, very poor. There were no railways. Was it canals? Yeah, there were canals. Uh, the roads were very poor. So nearly all the trade was conducted by water. So the, the goods would arrive from abroad in these big ports and then they would be put on small ships and taken to other ports, smaller ports, or they'd be taken down the Yangtze River or the Yellow River in boats. It was very complicated, but from a regulatory point of view, of course, it's extremely difficult because you, as the customs chief, you, you want to ensure that you know what's coming in, what's going out, the amounts, is the correct tax being paid on them, you know, people are not avoiding the tax. This was no simple matter. So that's what he, he set up to do. Also, the Chinese government wanted him to do a lot of other things. He became diplomat for them. He became advisor. They were seeking his advice on everything. So he didn't just have to run the customs service. They would say to him, we need a loan of uh, 12 million pounds. You know, help, to help, help us obtain this loan. We want to buy warships from Europe. Where do we buy them? What's the price? negotiate for us. I mean, he had to do all this as well. 1896, he set up the Chinese Postal Service. That was a completely new project. There was no budget for it. Prior to the China Postal Service, how would you have sent a letter? Well, the, the Customs Service had its own Postal Service. So if you were sitting in, in Europe or in America and you wanted to send a letter to your brother who was stationed in Shanghai or Beijing, you, you could do that. But China did not have a national system. It had, some, it had local services, but no national one. So the Qing government decided that they needed a national one. So Hart's postal service was the, was the model. So they said, OK, take this model and make it a, a nationwide one. So that was another enormous adventure that he took on. Yeah, any of these projects are huge, aren't they, really, when you think about it? And with the China Postal Service in the early days, they would then have produced their own stamps, or how did it work? Yes, uh, Hart produced the first stamps in China. So are they like valuable like the penny black now? Oh, they're super valuable because there are not many of them. 
So if you can get your hands on them, you're rich. And it was like the head of the emperor, like it would have been Queen Victoria? It was a dragon. It was a large dragon with China, with the Great Chi Empire written in Chinese and China written in English. For your book on Sir Robert Hart, where did you get your material from? Is it his personal papers? He wrote diaries and then he wrote letters to his main confidant, who was the secretary of his London office. And thank goodness... All these records are preserved until today. In 1900, the Boxers burned his house down in Beijing. So the Boxer Rebellion? Yes. And one of his uh, assistants went into the house. The house is burning and knows where these papers are and rescues them and runs out with them. So we, we must thank this secretary. So these uh, papers have all been published. So this is the main source of material. And why it's so good for the historian is that he didn't write this to be published because this man in London was his best friend, his confidant. He knew, what was his name? He was called James Campbell and he knew everything that Hart was doing. So these letters give you intimate portrait of everything that Hart is thinking, his policies with regard to the government, what he thought well or badly of the Qing government. He writes it all down. And also, this man is in charge of his children by the first wife. And this is absolute top secret. No one in the world is to know that there are three children of Robert Hart living and growing up in the UK. So all the matters concerning these three children are also done with this, with this uh, London confidant. So it's because of, of these letters that we can write such a complete portrait of of Hart. And, and sorry, we haven't mentioned the, the Sino-French War. This was 1884-1885, and this was a war over the control of North Vietnam, because France wanted to be the, the controlling power there, and previously it had been China. So this war was going on, and Hart became the negotiator to stop it. So he sent his secretary, this man James Campbell, from London to Paris, and he was in Beijing, and they used to communicate by secret coded telegrams, and they negotiated a peace deal. So the war ended. So this is really an amazing thing to imagine. We have a war going on in Vietnam, in southern China, in Taiwan, between France and China. And then we've got an Irishman in Beijing and a British man in Paris. And they're, they're, they negotiate a, a settlement. And the government was very grateful to him for that because the Chinese army did much better than they'd done in previous wars, but they were losing. So if the war had gone on, Chinese losses would have been worse and maybe the French army would have invaded Beijing and occupied it. So he got honours from the Chinese government. Do you like your subject? Very much so, yes. I, I think he's got a lot to teach us, and I think a lot to teach us today, not just in history. In what sense? Well, every year now, thousands of people are going from abroad to China to work, to study, for tourism. Nowadays, even there are people who have no job, who have no connection, they just go to China and hope to find a job, see what happens. All these people have the same dilemmas that Hart had when he arrived, which is... Do I learn Chinese? How do I learn Chinese? Do I marry a Chinese person? How much do I become part of Chinese society? How much do I give up? How much of, of my old self do I keep? How much of, do I become a Chinese person? I mean, all these dilemmas which Hart had are faced by people today. And then the other thing he has to teach us is how to behave w- with Chinese. 
you know, how to speak to them, how to comport yourself properly with them, what are the Chinese manners, way of speaking, etiquettes, giving gifts to people, when do you say what, at what times? I mean, Hart mastered all of this. Well, this is, this is something that is faced by all the foreigners in China. How did Robert Hart dress? Now, this is a very good question, because some people in the, in the Chinese foreign ministry wanted him to go 100%. So they wanted him to have a Chinese wife, they wanted him to dress in Chinese uh, costume, and if he met the emperor, that would have meant full kowtow. No, he didn't go that way. He insisted on wearing Western dress, so he wouldn't kowtow before the emperor. He went sort of 70% towards sort of Chinese-ness, but he kept a distance. My thanks to Mark O'Neill talking there on the life of Sir Robert Hart, who dedicated his life to the service of China. Mark's book is called Ireland's Imperial Mandarin, how Sir Robert Hart became the most influential foreigner in Qing China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Hong Kong Heritage, of course, with Anna-Marie. You're tuned to your station, RTHK Radio 3. The Keep Clean Ambassador. Having lived in Hong Kong for years, I believe that nothing is impossible. Hong Kong people can do anything. We work hard and also play hard. Keeping Hong Kong clean is simple. I can do it and so can you. We know how to handle large bags of garbage as well as small litter. We should dispose of our own garbage properly and never throw rubbish out of car windows. Hong Kong is our home and we can all play a part. Keep Hong Kong clean. We can do it. 5, 6, 7 a.m. Radio 3. And now, Amelia Fox continues reading The Girls of Slender Means, Muriel Spiak's witted novel sorry, set in post-war London, following the lives and loves of the genteel young ladies of the May of Tech boarding house. The exact nature of Jane's brain work was a mystery to the club because, when asked about it, she reeled off fast an explanation of extreme and alien detail about costing, printers, manuscripts, galleys and contracts. Well, Jane, you ought to get paid for all that extra work you do. The world of books is essentially disinterested. She always referred to the publishing business as the world of books. Jane received from the club, on account of her brain work and job in publishing, a certain amount of respect, which was socially offset by the arrival in the front hall every week or so of a pale, thin foreigner, decidedly in his thirties, with dandruff on his dark overcoat, who would ask in the office for Miss Jane Wright always adding, I wish to speak to her privately, please. Jane had to apologise to the office for him. He's a foreigner. It's in connection with the world of books. 
but another and more presentable man from the world of books had lately put in an appearance for Jane. This man, Nicholas Farringdon, had been rather charming, though shy. He's thoughtful, Jane said. We think him brilliant, 